we are talking about this story that took place, you know, roughly about 24 to 2,500 years ago. Uh, it's a story that starts in Persia. The Jews, uh, because of their unfaithfulness to God, have been in exile. They've been carried away. And now, through God's providence, through his sovereignty, they are going back into their land, back into Israel, back into Judah and uh, Jerusalem. It's a slow progression back uh, as they return home. And our story is about a particular man named Nehemiah who was a Jew who had been a slave but had worked his way up through the ranks of government in the Persian Empire and he is the cupbearer to the king, which we've talked about, but it's a very important, very influential position. And during this time as, as cupbearer, he hears news about what's been going on in Jerusalem, a town, uh, kind of his, his heritage home. It's a thousand miles away. It's a three to four month journey just to get there. But he hears about what's going on there. His heart breaks for Jerusalem. And so a man who has no, that we know of, um, no history in construction projects, takes it upon himself uh, through seeking God to travel that thousand miles, to go to Jerusalem, and to uh, bring the Jews together to rebuild the wall. And that's what they're doing when we pick up the story in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. And in chapter 5 and 6, we're going to be talking about fear, uh, one of our, our favorite things to talk about. And when I think about fear, um, I think a, uh, about the fact that a lot of our fears are uh, irrational, right? A lot of the things we fear are ir irrational. When I think about fear and being irrational, I think of when I was uh, 13 years old. And when I was 13 years old, uh, my best friend that summer, he and his family moved to San Clemente. They moved to the beach, had a house on the beach, and uh, they invited me to come live with them for the summer. So I thought that was going to be amazing. I was 13 years old. It was going to be a dream come true. And the night before uh, I went to spend the summer at the beach, I went to the movies with some friends. And um, I saw this movie. <laughs> true story. I saw this movie. It was so terrifying. It was, I was so petrified that the next day, I got on a train, I went to the beach, and for the first week, Brian and I would go down each day, we'd look at the beach, we'd stare at the beach, and then we'd go skateboarding or do some other thing, you know, because we were not going to go in the water. And so after a week of being irrationally afraid of going into the water, uh, we came up with this plan. We found that his dad had a, uh, a fishing spear in the garage, and so we thought we would take that with us, and we would go out and we would protect ourselves. We'd go boogie boarding one by one with the spear. I don't know if you can picture boogie boarding with a spear in your hand, but it turned out that spirit went through Brian's foot, and what we discovered was uh, that the thing we were afraid of, right, was irrational. It, the, the thing we should have been afraid of, it didn't even occur to us, but, you know, we were 13. When you think about being afraid, my question for you is, what, what, what are you afraid of? Uh, rational, irrational, whatever it is. And over the years, as a pastor, I've had a lot of discussions. I've heard uh, a lot of your fears. I know that at the top of some of those lists, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of uh, health fears that people have, uh, afraid of getting sick, afraid of getting a disease. There's a lot of fear for getting cancer, or some of you fear getting old. Some of you are afraid of getting bald. It's not that bad. Uh, I know that for some of you, it's, it's relational, 
right? There's a fear of rejection. I find a lot of, a lot of us are afraid of being rejected or for some people it's a fear of, of being unloved or being alone. Uh, people tell me I'm afraid, you know, I'm never going to get married or then they'll say I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to get married or uh, I'm afraid I'm never going to have kids or I'm afraid we're going to have kids or I'm afraid we're, you know, the kids are going to live with us for the rest of our lives or um, conflict. A lot of us are very afraid of conflict. Um, afraid of not being part of the in crowd. There's a lot of financial fear I, I see in our society today. People who are afraid of not being able to pay the bills, or pay the rent, or buy food. People are afraid I don't have a retirement, or uh, just of being destitute, not being able to live the life that they want to live. Uh, people have educational fears, right? I'm afraid of failing a test, failing a class, failing school. There's vocational fears. I'm afraid of, you know, I'm never going to get a job or I'm not going to be able to keep a job or get a job I like or make enough money. There's a fear of failure. Quite a bit of that in our world. There's a fear of the future. A lot of people are afraid of, of what's coming. They don't know what it is. There's a fear of death. I tell you, when I was thinking this week about, like, being afraid of things, I would tell you that probably the thing that I think about that, that I fear in a certain way is I fear what I would just call becoming functionally blind. Uh, my eyes are bad. They're not great. Um, I fear not being able to be independent. I think that's a big fear many of us have, isn't it? That we would reach a point where we wouldn't be independent anymore. I think about, like, if I can't drive, if I can't, re- in fact, I was thinking about this yesterday, if I can't drive, if I can't read a book, if I can't write a sermon, if I can't, you know, see your faces, I, it just, it's hard to imagine what life would be like. And I think all of us have kind of those, those things, those things that we're afraid of that are in the front of our mind. Fear is part of the human condition, but the Bible says there's an antidote to fear. And oddly enough, the antidote to fear is fear. So let me pray for us and, and we'll dive in. Father God, I, I pray for us this morning. I pray as we uh, think a little bit about this world we live in and all the, all the things there are to be afraid of, some irrational and some completely rational. I pray that you will open up uh, our, our hearts, our minds this morning to hear what you have to say about fear. And so be our instructor and our teacher now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So fear, uh, we're going to start here. The first thing in your notes this morning is this, that the fear of God is foundational. So we're going to talk this morning, not just about fear, but about the fear of God and why this is so important. In fact, the fear of God is a huge biblical theme. In your notes, I've, I've defined it this way. This is, a, this is a classical definition of the fear of God. The fear of God is the awe, the reverence, the honor, and the worship demanded by the majesty of his person, his power, and his, his position. I know it's a big, long, run-on sentence, but basically what it means is this. Because God is all the omnis, right? He's omnipresent. He's om, omnipotent. He's, he's all, he's, he's everywhere. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. He's eternal. All these things make God awesome. I guess that's a word we might use today. And, and this awesomeness of God causes us to have a particular kind of fear for God. And what we read is this in the Bible, that the fear of the Lord is what we might call supremely rational. It's rational to be afraid of God because God is before all things. God is above all things. God is over all things. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is, God is calling the shots. God is the judge. And for all of these reasons, he is 
He is the one who should be at the center of our heart, not just above all things in the world, but above and before all things in our heart. And the Bible puts it this way in Proverbs 9.10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've probably heard this verse and, and talked about this. The fear of the Lord, in fact, is the theme of all wisdom literature. The whole goal of wisdom literature is to show us that in every area of life, we need the wisdom of God. And where does the wisdom begin? It begins with a fear of God. And what we discover as we read the wisdom literature is that you know, we can be intelligent, we can have a 4.0, we can know stuff and have all the right answers and have all the right skills, but if God isn't first in my heart, then, and if I don't fear him above everything else, then everything else in my life will be out of, out of place. God has to be before all things, in front of all things, in order for everything else in our life to make sense and to fit where it needs to fit. Martin Luther struggled a lot with the biblical topic of fear because he noticed that in some places in Scripture we're told to fear, and in some places in Scripture, we're told not to fear or to fear not. And so Luther wrestled with this. Like, how do we reconcile the biblical command to fear and the biblical command to, to not fear? And what he did was he, he kind of described two kinds of fear that we find in Scripture. The first is what he called a, a servile fear. A servile fear is a, a dreadful anxiety or terror in which someone is frightened by the clear and present danger that is represented by another person. Um, the classical understanding of servile fear is it's the fear that a person would have towards a jailer, towards, towards a torturer, um, towards an executioner. It was a dreadful kind of fear for this person who had control over your life and meant to do you harm. It's called servile fear. And, and Luther says this is one of the kinds of fear that we see in the scripture. But there's a second kind of fear. Uh, phileo fear is, is Latin. It means family. And this, this love, this filial fear, is what we might call the love, respect, and awe of a child for a father whom he dearly wants to please. And this fear is eager to avoid displeasing or offending the one who is the source of his security and love. That's kind of the classical definition of a filial fear. This is kind of what it means, though. It's, it's to have fear or really it's an awe, it's a reverence, it's a respect for someone who loves you, who cares for you, in this case is like a, a father, like a parent who provides for you, who takes care of you, and, and you love them so much and you have so much respect for them, but you don't want to displease them. Servile fear is appropriate for people who don't belong to God. They should feel this way toward God. They should fear what is coming if they don't know Christ. It's really a gift from God, Luther says, because it awakens us to God. It awakens us to, to sin and judgment and salvation. But filial fear is that which replaces servile fear for those who are people of God. When we become Christians, God takes away that servile fear and he replaces it with a filial fear, with a, a family fear of God as our, as our father. Actually, this was kind of illustrated for me, uh, let's see, so eight days ago. Uh, so I, I'll tell this story carefully and selectively. Um, so eight days ago, I, uh, had a, I had a loaner vehicle. My vehicle was in the shop. And they had given me um, a, a hybrid vehicle. And uh, it, it was really fast. I'm going to start the story that way. And uh, so I was, I was heading to Home Depot from my, my house. And so uh, we got the roundabouts, right? So I was, was getting on the roundabout uh, at 32nd. 
And I was going to travel between those to the second roundabout. I mean, I just love the roundabouts. And um, so I was getting on, and you may know it's a construction zone, and so it's 40 miles an hour. And I got on the first roundabout. I'm heading west, and I'm just, uh, I'm just not paying attention at all to what I'm doing. And this vehicle's kind of fast, but I'm not, it's not, my, not my goal to go fast. I know I'm making excuses. So I, I hit the gas, and I'm going down the road. And uh, as I'm kind of getting up by the crest of the road, I look over to my right, <clears throat> and there's a police officer uh, parked on the side of the road. So I immediately, of course, look at the speedometer and notice that I'm going uh, significantly faster than 40 miles an hour. We'll just leave it at that. And uh, so I instantly take my foot off the brake, and I go past the police officer. Now, there's a lot of cars on the road at this point. I think I'm probably okay. I go past him, and sure enough, his lights go on, and he pulls out. And I was oh, man. And I knew it was for me. So I just, I pulled over, and he pulled over, got out of his car. You know how they do that really slow walk? And you're like, I'm like putting down the shades, uh, putting a hat on so people don't, oh, look, the pastor's in trouble, right? Comes up to the side window, knocks on the window. I put the window down. He leans in, and he says, and it's a great line. I'm sure he's used it before. He's like, so what's the story? <laughs> right? Because there's got it. He knows he's going to hear a story. And so I'm like, you know, so here's the thing. I, um, I had made a deal with God years ago. Uh, if I ever get pulled over for speeding, I'll just be like, cuff me, just take me. I, you know, I, I don't, I, honestly, that's probably one of my big struggles is driving the speed limit or, or not driving. Anyways, I, so he looks at me and I said, you know what, officer, I'm sorry, this is not my car, but that's no excuse. And I was speeding and you should just write, just write me the ticket, you know, just write the ticket. And so he, uh, you know, gets the driver's license and the registration and all that and goes back to his car, has a conversation, comes back, leans over, has my license and he says this, he says, I'm really sorry for pulling you over. <laughs> he said, I know that this, this the construction zone is really a pain. Everyone's going really fast. And then he looks at me and he says this. He's like, if I let you go, can you promise me you won't speed through here again? And I was like, <laughs> But I said, yes, officer, I will absolutely do my best. And uh, he let me go. So I went, uh, went to Home Depot, and as I was coming back, I'm, I'm driving, I'm heading into the uh, construction zone, and so I start to slow it down and get down to 40. And what I noticed was there's a lot of other people on the road that drive like I used to, you know, 20 minutes earlier. And they're like on my tail, and I, I'm like, I'm not speeding, I'm not speeding. And here's why I decided I'm absolutely not speeding. Because that man was gracious to me, he was merciful to me, and I did not want him to pull me over again and say, what did I tell you, right? Like, I, I didn't want to disappoint him. I didn't want the window to go down and for him to see that it was me. Because he had been merciful to me, and I, right? And so what had happened is, I kind of transitioned from a survival fear, if you will, to a filial kind of fear, right? because I appreciated what he had done. I appreciated the compassion that he had for me, and this is kind of what we're talking about here with this. It's that God, when he has compassion on us, God, when he has mercy on us, we are so in awe of God, of, of who he is and what he's done, that we don't want to disappoint him. We, we want to please him. In Exodus 20, in fact, there's a story. Uh, God uh, comes down to Mount Sinai, and there's thunder and lightning, and, and the Israelites are absolutely terrified of the presence of God. It freaks them out. And in Exodus 20, this is what Moses says. He says to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What he's saying is this, have no servile fear. 
For, for God has come to save you. God has come to give you the joy of filial fear, of having a relationship with God. In fact, in Nehemiah, in chapter 1, we see that Nehemiah has the same kind of fear towards God. We see it in his prayer in chapter 1 when he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, notice this, and to the prayer of your servants who, and this feels weird to us, who delight to fear your name. See that? So that's not servile fear. That's a filial fear that delights in God, that loves God, that enjoys God. I know it it feels weird to us to have a joyful fear, but this is what happens when we receive the grace and mercy of God. There's a great joy when we live in awe of God, when, when he is first in our life, when he is on the throne, when he is in charge. There's a wisdom, there's a peace, there's a perspective, and all of this comes to us, but in Nehemiah today, it's, it's even more than that. I want you to notice that the fear of God is not only foundational, the fear of God is relational. The fear of God impacts how we treat each other as believers. Now, in chapter 5, there's a problem. And the problem is this, that, that everyone has come together to build these walls around Jerusalem. And while these walls are build, being built, people are not working. And they're not being paid for the project. They're just kind of all pitching in. So everyone comes every day, and they're working on this wall. And apparently, um, there had been a famine going on in the land, and there had been some financial problems in Jerusalem. So things were already difficult financially. And in chapter 5, verse 2, we pick up the story. It says, as they're building the wall one day, there's this conversation. It says, for for there were those who said to Nehemiah, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So the picture is, we got big families and we don't have enough food in the house. So we need some food. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it for other men of our fields and our vineyards. So here's what's going on. There are basically three groups of people uh, that have come to Nehemiah here. The first group are, are, these are laborers. These people don't own their own fields to raise their own crops, so they were hourly workers, and they would go out and, and make money, and they would have an income, and they would feed their families. But these people are busy building the wall, so there's no income coming in, and now they can't afford food. This is the first group. The second group are a group of people who own property, But apparently, because of the famine and difficult times, they had taken out loans and they had used their property as collateral to to get by. But now, they can't make payments on the property, and they're losing their property. It's being foreclosed on. And some of them, it's so severe, they're, they're selling some of their children into slavery. Now, When we hear that, that sounds barbaric, but back then it was actually a very common thing uh, to do. What would happen in a situation like this was you'd have a lot of kids, and and let's say you went into debt, and and you couldn't feed your family. Well, you didn't want to mortgage the property, because if you mortgage the property, there was no way for you to to make money. And so they they would sell one of their children... Uh, to someone else, and basically they were a, they were a hired worker. They, they might live at home or they might live 
with whoever it is they were working for, and they would work to pay off the debt. But in the meantime, the family would have their property, they would raise a crop, and the hope was raise enough money to be able to buy their child back. But what's happening here is uh, people are going broke, and they're not able to hire their children back. And then there's a third group of people who also own property. They were a little bit better off than everyone else. They could hold out longer. But their problem is they can't pay their property taxes. Like literally, they can't buy their property taxes. Taxes are going up. I don't know if they want to build a pool or what it is they want to do. But taxes are going up and people are mortgaging their property and their their children are in slavery. And so they come to Nehemiah. They tell them this is what's going on. And in verse 7 it says, Nehemiah says, I took counsel with myself. The idea here, by the way, in the original language is that he consulted with himself. It has the idea that he was very angry at what he heard, at, at the way that people were treating each other. And so the first thing he does is he, he calms down, you know, he gets in a good place, kind of processes it through, and then he, he brought the people together. He says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. So first Nehemiah gets, gets composure and then he calls a town meeting. Now he invites everyone to come to this meeting and he just addresses the problem. He says, this is what I hear is going on and he proposes a solution. But what I love here is that he, he is concerned for both the oppressed and the oppressor. And this isn't something you always see. I think especially in our culture, we're really quick to be offended by other groups and other people and, and to have a division and we're so quick to be uh, righteously angry at other people and I love how Nehemiah, he cares about everybody. He cares about the people who are being oppressed. He cares about the people who are oppressing. He loves them, he cares about them, he wants all of them to grow so he brings them together. And his point is this, that it is the fear of God that should define how we treat each other. The fear of God. In other words, I think, to put it another way, what Nehemiah is saying here is that, I don't know if you've ever heard people say, it's not personal, it's just business, right? What Nehemiah is saying is that that's never true. That is never true with believers. It is always personal because we are family. So a little background here on what's going on. We've talked about the fact that years earlier, because of their sin, the Jews had been carried away into exile, and they, they were slaves. And then after a while, um, the exile was kind of canceled, and they were allowed to return to their land, but, but many of them just kind of being set loose, they, they didn't have any way of, of having an income, and so some of them were sold away into slavery to Gentiles. Some of the Jews returned to Israel, they, they made some money, and they would, every now and then they would pool their money together and they would buy a slave. They would buy a brother or sister and, and they would pay for them and bring them back to Jerusalem. And so as they could, they were, they were pooling their money together and setting Jews who were slaves, they were setting them free. But now what's happening is, because of the famine, people are being sold back into slavery. But here's the problem. They're not being sold back into slavery to Gentiles, they're being sold back into slavery to each other. So like a neighbor is, is buying his neighbor's daughter as a slave or son as a slave. And they're just saying, you know what, it's not personal. It's just, it's just business. And what happens is the people who have a lot of money are in a position to do this and they're foreclosing on property and they're, they're, it's an opportunity to make a lot of money off their neighbors who are their brothers and sisters as Jews. But as they said, it's just it's just business. 
What Nehemiah is saying is this. It may have sounded like good business when you're sitting down across a table and you're looking at your neighbor and you're saying, you know what, I'll, I'll buy your son, I'll buy your daughter and I'll give you some cash and I'll help you out. What he's saying is this. Sometimes we make deals behind closed doors that when brought out under the light of day don't look that great, do they? Or sometimes, I dare say, we have attitudes about people. We have feelings about people. We judge people in certain ways behind closed doors that if it was brought out into the light of day, would never be okay. And what Nehemiah is doing is he's, he's calling people on this. In verse 9, he says, so he says, that this thing that you are doing is not good. So just, you're right, let's not do this. Ought you not to walk, and here it is, ought you not to walk in the what? In the fear. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So he says this is, this is not good. That the fear of God should motivate us to treat each other better than this. As some commentator said, what he was saying was this. This is a time for gifts. This is a time for generosity. This is a time for mercy and for grace. It's not a time to make a profit off each other. It'd be kind of like, you know, maybe there's a natural disaster, a hurricane, an earthquake or something, and then afterwards, right, merchants jack up the price of, of essentials of water and gas, and that, they gouge other people in a time like that, right? And to us, that's reprehensible. And yet that's exactly what's going on here. It's a terrible thing. But here's what's really shocking. It's kind of thrown in the middle of the chapter here, but Nehemiah admits in the middle of all this that he's been doing this too, which is kind of shocking when you read it that he just puts it out there. I mean, I think in our society today, we've grown so accustomed to people who have power and people who are leaders and politicians who will never admit their mistakes, right? They'll, they'll just blame other people or they'll blame the other party or they'll blame the media or their, or their predecessor. But rarely do we observe leaders in our culture just admitting, I sinned, I blew it, it was wrong, will you forgive me? But this is what Nehemiah does. He says, I've been doing this too and I won't do this anymore. And then he says this in verse 11, return to them this very day their fields their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of, of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. In other words, he says, let's cancel all debt, let's return all the property that you've taken, return all interest. And in verse 14, he says this, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me, so he's the governor during this time, and there were governors before him, and these were people who laid heavy burdens on the people and took uh, from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. So again, there's something different about Nehemiah and the way he governed because of the fear of God. Let's see what that is. Moreover, he says, there were at my table, that's in his house, every day, 150 men. That's actually people. 150 people. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Here's what he's saying. As governor, he was entitled to tax the people whatever he wanted so that two things, so that he could have an income, and secondly, so that he could afford to feed all the people who worked for him. This is his right, and before him, governors had always done this. Nehemiah doesn't do this. He decides it's too difficult for the people. So what he does instead is he feeds 150 people every day at his table. 
Can you imagine? That's like a, that's a long table, right? And it says he paid for it himself. In other words, he used his powerful position not to benefit, but to serve other people. Why did he do it? Well, he tells us because of the filial fear of God. It motivated him to treat other people as God had instructed. By the way, how does God instruct us to treat other people? In fact, we just did an entire 11-week series on that very thing. How has God told us to treat one another? By way of review from our previous series, God has called us to commit to one another's believers. We are to be committed to, we don't just walk into church on the weekend, say hi, fist bump, or whatever we do, and how's it going? Oh, you need prayer? Oh, you need something? I hope that all works out and leave. That's not what we do. He says when we have the filial fear of God, it changes the way that, that we treat one another. We commit to one another. We, we love one another. We talked about that as well. We love one another the way that God had loved us. It was a sacrificial love. It says we forgive one another. We all sin. We all make mistakes. What do we do with it? We're a family that forgives. We accept one another. What does that mean? None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived yet. We're all in process. We're all in journey. What do we do? He says we accept one another as Christ has accepted us. We love one another as Christ has loved us. We are to be generous to one another. We don't look for ways to benefit. Oh, you're hurting. Oh, you're struggling. Oh, I'll write you a loan. I'll give you a really good interest rate, right? No, that's not what we do. We're, we're generous. We give. We sacrifice. We encourage one another. We build up one another. We talked about that. We, we pray for one another. We don't just say, hey, I'll pray for you. We actually pray. We actually keep lists. We actually take time to do that, right? And we serve one another. We look for ways to bless one another. And so what it tells us here in chapters five and six is that the fear of the Lord, it impacts the way that we treat one another, the way that we serve one another. And the last thing I want to point out is this, that the fear of God in chapter 5 and 6, it's not only foundational, it's not only relational, it brings a focus to life like nothing else. So now in chapter 6, we get to a verse that we often think of when we think of Nehemiah. And as we talk about the fear of God, God, what I want to say is this, the fear of God is what motivates us to do what we would not naturally do. Here's how one writer put it. Did Noah like animals? Did Moses like camping? Did Ruth like gleaning? Did Daniel like living abroad? Did John the Baptist like confrontation? Did Paul like prison? Did Nehemiah like construction? Yeah, these people did not love their assignments. They feared the Lord. And those were the assignments that God gave them. That's the motivation here. Not the love for the thing, but the fear of the Lord. Did you catch that? It's not the love of the thing. And for so many of us, isn't it true that we are more in love with the thing than we are in fear of God? And so when we approach God, we approach God, God, give me this, God, give me that, because it's all about the love of the thing instead of the fear of the Lord. That is such a powerful and transformational thing. When we stop living for just treating God, God, here's what I want from you, instead saying, God, what do you want from me? As the one who has saved me, as the one who has redeemed me, as the one who has loved me, as the one who has changed my identity, God, what do you want from me? What is your assignment for me? Nehemiah's assignment, by the way, came with a lot of baggage. It came with a lot of fears. There were threats, there was slander, there were traps, there were continual distractions. 
And we've seen that in the first five chapters, but in chapter six, it really comes out. In verse one, it says this, now when Sambalat and Tobiah, so we've, we've read about them several times now, not friends of the Jews, not friends of, of Nehemiah for sure, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time, I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem said to me, they said, come, let us meet together at Hakepharim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. So they, they would send a, a letter to Nehemiah and say, hey, you know, you're the governor of Jerusalem and we're big shots outside of Jerusalem, so we need to get together, have a little meeting, you know, a little, little discussion, a little Camp David here. So if you could come down from the wall and come meet with us, that would be good. The plain of Ono is about a one-plus-day journey each way. And the goal simply is to get Nehemiah off the job, to get him distracted and, and to fall into their trap. And it's relentless. In fact, for the rest of chapter six, they just keep doing it. In verse five, it says this, in the same way, Sam Bellop, for the notice for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So it, they just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And this time they come with an open letter. And the idea was they would stand at the wall and read this letter out loud to everybody. And there were two accusations in the letter. One was that the Jews were planning to finish the wall and rebel against the Persians. Now this is a big deal because this had, this had happened about 13 years er, earlier. And it was so successful that they stopped the building of the wall and tore what had been built down. And the second accusation in this letter is that Nehemiah's plan is that once the wall is done and once they leave the Persian Empire, that he's going to be king. All right, so you can see what they're doing here. They're trying to get everybody in Jerusalem to question what Nehemiah is up to. And the goal is to intimidate him into stopping the work. And it's exhausting. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. They threaten him and he ignores him and then they threaten him again and they try to get him to meet with them and he refuses and they do it again and then they pressure him with an open letter that they read to everybody and then they hire a prophet at one point in the chapter to say, you know, they're going to come kill you and you should come hide in the temple, which was not legal for him to do. So they're just tempting him and, and they're trying him and they're trying to get him distracted. And finally, uh, he responds this way in verse three. He says, and I, and I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Have you ever heard that before? That's a very famous part of Nehemiah. I'm doing a great work. I'm doing an important work and I cannot stop what I'm doing and come down to you. And they continually try to distract Nehemiah from doing God's work, but he stays focused and he doesn't let the fear of others distract him. See, that's what they're trying to do, to get him to be afraid so that he'll stop living by faith. But he refuses, and he stays focused. Now, I think it's safe to say most of us do not deal with enemies like Sambala and Tobiah and Geshem. But I think it's still challenging for us today, isn't it, to keep our focus on what's most important in life. I mean, there are countless things for us to be afraid of. Right? There are relational problems we're dealing with. There's rejection and persecution and, I mean, financial problems and educational problems. And, and quite frankly, sometimes the problems, both rational and irrational, can paralyze us from living by faith. 
And then there are just limitless distractions for us. We live in a very unique time in history where there are just limitless distractions. There's stuff to, to binge watch, right? And there's entertainment choices and we can have hobbies today like never before and be involved in activities. Many of us can travel around the world today in a way that was just not even fathomable to, to previous generations. The shopping and the career opportunities and working and working to get ahead and there's ministries to serve in, countless ministries and there's social media. And I think sometimes we can get so filled, our schedule can become so filled with lesser things that there's no time left for the most important things. Which begs a question. Nehemiah knew what the great work was in his life. It was, at that point, it was building the wall. Here's my question for you. What's that, what is that for you today? What is the great work that God has given to you today? What is the great work that you should not be distracted from? That you should not let things siphon off your energy from? What, what are those things? And I, I would just say that those things change as you go through life. So, for instance, a few years earlier, we would say the great work Nehemiah was doing was he was a cupbearer. And he needed to do it well to glorify God through doing that job. Now it's changed. Now he's not doing this anymore. The great work is something else. It's building the wall. And then as we'll see, it will change again later on. And so we have these seasons in life. So my question is, what, what season are you in right now? And what is the great work? Because I know that God's given every one of you a great work. But, but, but what is it? Maybe right now the great work is to be a, a student. But not just a student to be a Christ-following student, to be a student who follows Christ at school and, and in all that they do. Maybe there's some particular relationships that you're involved in right now, and it's a season. You won't have those relationships forever. You know, sometimes I talk with parents, especially parents with really young children, and I'll often say, you know, how are you doing? And a lot of times they'll look at me and they're kind of blurry-eyed and they'll be like, well, I you know, haven't slept in two years kind of thing, right? And I, I try not to say it. I try not to say it because it, it uh, you know, I know it isn't probably easily received, but if you've been down that right, road, right, as parents, a lot of times what you want to say is, you know what, it won't last forever. And, but right now is a, is a really special season in life and you'll look back and Miss it, kind of, you know? Because in life, there are these seasons. There are, there's great work that God gives us to do. Right now, maybe it's your marriage. Right now, maybe it's your job. Maybe God wants to use you with that job. And it's to see, you won't work there forever. You won't work forever, God willing, you know? But right now, that's where you are, and that's what God has. Maybe it's as a parent right now, and in your relationships with, maybe it's as a daughter or a son. And the relationship that you have with your parents. Maybe it's as a co-worker. Maybe it's a ministry that you're involved in. What is it right now? What season are you in? And my question is, are you giving those things the attention they deserve? The time, the prayer, the effort, the, the priority. Where do you need to say, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down? So because I can tell you this, if you can identify the two or three or four or seven great things that you are doing right now, I guarantee you that you have an enemy and he's trying to get you distracted from doing those things. Where do you need to say thank you but no thank you? See, because some of the distractions aren't bad things, they're good things, they're just not the best things. Where do you need to say I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down? Well, he goes on and says this, for they all wanted to frighten us. There, there's the point. They wanted to frighten us. They said, their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. And so Nehemiah and the Jews had an enemy. 
that wanted to make them afraid through slander and threats and, and sabotage. But Nehemiah prays to God for strength. See, his, his awe of God, his fear of God overcomes his fear of man. That's how it works. His fear, his love, his awe, his respect, his honor of God causes him to trust God even when people want to make him afraid. He trusts God to be his defense. Or as one writer put it, Nehemiah, Nehemiah's resolve is what not, isn't what battles his fear. A lot of times we think the way we get through fear is we just have resolve. Nehemiah's resolve is not battling his fears. His fear is battling his fears. He fights the fear of man with the fear of God. In fact, it's interesting in Scripture, the phrase do not fear appears over 300 times in the Bible. And every time within the context somewhere is, is a phrase something like because I am the Lord or because I will fight for you or because I am with you or because I have promised you or because I, I hold you. And so as we get to the end of chapter 6, it says this, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elo in 52 days. We'll talk about this in the weeks, weeks to come. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It says our enemies were afraid. Nehemiah's enemies were trying to create a fear in him. But they ended up being the ones in fear because they realized that God had done a great work through these people. So, a few things to consider as we close. The first is this. What, is the, what would you say is the great work that God has given you to do right now? When's the last time you just kind of sat down? And you might need to take a little time this afternoon and think about that. What are the relationships and the responsibilities that you have in your life that are most important? And if you were to just kind of write those down in descending order, where would you draw the line? And where would you say, you know, reasonably, I can't do this much, but I could do this much. What are the most important things in your life right now? And I, by the way, I just say, if you're not exactly sure, and, and you're married, or you got a family at home, you might ask the other people around the table, because often they, they know what those things are. Here's the second thing. Where do you need to say, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down? What is it right now that you need to say no to? It's not that it's a bad thing. It's just not the best thing. What do you need to say no to so that you can say yes to the most important things? And the third thing is this. Would you say that you were living in the fear of what others might do to you if you boldly live with Jesus? Or are you secure in the filial fear of God as one who's been forgiven, as one who's been loved, as, as one who is indwelt by the Spirit of God? And what I want to do is I want to I close our time together uh, by taking communion because I, I think sometimes we get to this point in a sermon and then I'm just going to pray and we're out of here and we need a minute to think don't we we need a minute to talk to God and, and to kind of work this through so I'm going to ask the guys to go back and they're going to grab the bread and the cup and if you have a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ I want to encourage you they're going to pass this out grab the bread grab the cup hold on to that for a minute I'm going to read something to you and uh and then I will, uh, I'll pray for us and we'll take communion together. Nehemiah has no idea what's coming down the road in 400 years. This is at the, kind of the end of the recorded Old Testament. He has no idea what will be required to move people from the servile fear of God to the filial fear of God. But we know 
what it takes so that we can live in that filial fear. We know that it's going to require that God comes to earth in the flesh. That's Jesus. He comes down here. He lives in a, in a body like ours. He's born of a virgin. He lives a, a perfect life. Guys, you can come forward and, and pass those out. He lives a perfect life in our place. Eventually, he is rejected by the very people he created, that he loves, that he came to serve. He ends up being arrested, betrayed, nailed to a cross, where he's mocked and ridiculed, where he suffers and dies, where he gives up his body and his blood. We know that he is buried in a tomb, but three days later he rises from the grave. Scripture says that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Greek it's difficult to really know how to put that in the English word for word, but it has this idea when Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and he's sweating those drops of blood that he is dealing with distress and, and dread and agony. And many, many commentators believe that what's going on here is that Jesus is experiencing servile fear because he's taken on the sins of the world and the Father has turned his back on Jesus. He's living with this dread, with this agony, but Jesus embraced it. Jesus bore our sin and our shame and our judgment and he went to that cross and that tomb and he did it for us so that we could move from the servile fear of God to the filial fear of God, to being children of God. In 1 John 4, 18, it tells us this, there is no fear in love, but, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out that dread and that terror and that expectation of judgment because Christ bore every one of those crushing realities for us. And it's our Savior's love that removes fear and dread and gives us the gift of filial fear. In Psalm 130, it tells us this, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. When we receive the forgiveness of God, there is a fear, there is an awe, there is a reverence for what God has done for us. And this is what we find when we come to communion. We are reminded what it took for us to be in this room all these years later, to be able to be secure and safe in the filial fear of God in the work of Christ. Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he reminded them why they, why they do what we're about to do. He said, for I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says this, and let a person examine himself then, and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And that's good advice. This is not the kind of thing we want to rush into. And so I want to encourage you to take a moment and to talk to God, to thank him for what Christ did on the cross, for removing the servile fear and giving us something infinitely better, the filial fear of God, the awe and the reverence.